Section 4 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Chapter 4 Dark Days. Satiated, nay, almost to disgust, as was Bertram Gonault with that incessant round of change which goes on from day to day and from hour to hour in hotel life, that unceasing round which, let its professions be never so homely, shears such a life of the semblance of home. The tentative claimant to Vernwood occupied lodgings in a quiet London street in the west end of town. The evening of Bertram's visit to the aged ex-lawyer at his villa of Rose Mead he had by him quite sufficient food for thought. Thus it was that he had dismissed the colored boy Jules Massey, and sat in the huge and shabby easy, or uneasy, lodging-house chair, which he had drawn at right angles to the grate, and gazed long and thoughtfully into the fire through the fumes of an indifferent Britishly-made cigar. The burden of proof now rested upon Bertram's own shoulders, or rather upon his own head. And the proof of what? The proof that he was his own father's son, the proof of his right to inherit, to enjoy even his own inheritance, his due. And what he knew and believed honestly in his heart of hearts was nothing but his due. Then the old rhyme came into Bertram's mind. "'Tis a very good world that we live in, to lend or to spend or to give in, but to borrow or beg or get a man's own, tis the very worst world that ever was known. Still, for all that, yes, from every aspect of the case, whether in equity or law both, Wyndham and Lumley were right. He must prove who he was. As he sat there, square before the blazing fire in the solitary, dingy, stuffy, frowsy room of his cheap London lodgings, more as London lodgings were often thirty years ago than now. Bertram's mind seemed to roam away over land and sea in search of what he desired. Proof! Who did he, Bertram Gunalt, know in England? Who knew or cared a cent for Bertram Gunalt? Echo seemed to answer, Not a soul. Among all those thousands of men and women, all those thousands of faces he met, in his everyday wanderings about the inhospitable London streets, with their hurrying, scurrying, unsympathetic, money-seeking crowds, who knew who cared for Bertram Gunalt? The voice of the echo seemed again to answer, Not a soul! In all this Europe, where he had landed for refuge, who knew who cared for Bertram Gunalt? The voice of echoes seemed again to answer, Not a soul, not a soul. Here he was, in this great London, almost solitary, alone, for what was Jules, the young boy Jules Massey to him, but a mere appendage. Thus dozed and dreamed Bertram Goodalt. Then his mind wandered away in thought to the great country from whence he had come. Even there, although the outlook seemed more promising, gloomy, as it is everywhere, was at its very best. Even from thence he was a fugitive. He had fled from a wrecked inheritance, a cursed, 
blasted, banned, and discarded system, a defunct and vanquished cause, from a scene of disorder, topsy-turvydom, and collapse such as seem ever to follow revolution or track the wake of war. A condition of events amid which it looked as if he might almost as well seek proof of his own identity, or try to find those who could furnish it, as one might seek for renovation in the midst of ruin, or the germ of order from a universal chaos. But often we look far and wide, we traverse wary ways in search of those riches which lay at our very doors. Bertram Gnault, as he sat even for hours, brooding over his mischances and his ills, was doing this, although not in measure sufficient for his ends. He thought, and thought, and thought, and when the black boy Jules Massey returned, he dismissed him at once again for the night, so that he might still be alone. The hours rolled on past midnight, still absorbed in his vexations and perplexities. Bertram took between his thumb and fingers the heavy circlet of gold which he always wore on the ring digit of his left hand, and musingly turned and twisted it over and over and round and round. It was a large ring, composed of a sapphire shield in a massive setting of yellow gold. Then with that suddenness of inspiration, attributed only to the electric fluid, and the human god imparted attribute of thought, the whole train of events flashed through the thinker's mind. The ring was an heirloom, which previous to interment he had taken from his father's finger as he lay dead on the field at Five Forks. Often during life had Hubert Gnault discussed the merits and virtues and history of the valuable jewel, which his father had told him he held as it were in trust as a token of heirship through successive generations. With an intensity of grief known to his own heart alone, had young Bertram Gnault drawn that ring from off his father's bloodless and lifeless hand as he lay dying, or dead, after the engagement of Five Forks, when with the death of his late parent he foreknew with a prescience, which was only too clear and evident to him, that, together with the loss of the Southern cause, together with the emancipation decrees which would follow the victory of the Northern forces under Generals Grant and Sherman, to the southern slave-owning planters, the defeat which was accomplished amid the rain and storms of that fatal night must bring widespread, well-nigh universal ruin in their train. As the young man bent over the expiring parent, he realized that not only had he lost the sole guardian of boyhood and youth, but that he stood in a country where he had now practically no abiding place, no home. Never from that fatal night as the moon shone cold and full and clouded upon the battle scene, had Bertram Gnault driven from his imagination the vision of the upturned face of his dead parent, the cold touch of horror as he drew the heirloom of his race from that dead white hand. Its remembrance even now seemed to haunt him, as the recollection of some ghastly phantom of an unreality, of some horrid dream. And now the whole train of circumstances, as he sat musing before the gloomy London lodging-house fire in his solitary room, rushed through his mind with the rapidity and fullness of a ray of light, 
an inspiration rather than a thought, one of those impromptus which seemed to come to us when sense and intellect fails, like a flash of light from heaven. The ring had come down through successive generations of Gnaults. Was the prerogative of the heir? Did not that prove likewise his heirship to the estate of Vernwood? The following day saw Bertram at the office of Mr. Lumley, showing him the trinket. Its significance was, however, corroborative only, and would not of itself be of sufficient weight to convince fully the judicial mind. That was what the unsympathetic, callous-hearted lawyer told him. Then there followed another visit to the nonagenarian ex-lawyer at Rosemead, and there again Bertram produced his evidence of identity and told its history and its tale. Old Horace Wyndham was cheery, took Bertram's ring, examined it carefully, and admired it duly. "'Mr. Gnault,' at length said the old man, "'I have a distinct recollection of that ring as an heirloom in the possession of Lawrence Gnault.' At this, Bertram's face brightened. "'Yes, but that would not be sufficient evidence in the eye of the English law,' Horace Wyndham added. And so once more Bertram plodded back to the dingy apartments a dispirited and disappointed man, to brood over the awkward and untoward exigencies and vexatious exactions of English law. Why did they exist? Why had rational governors ever propounded such a complication of inexplicable technicalities? Why couldn't a man stand on his own right, and on his own acres, and defy the whole world in his own shoes? Wasn't Vernwood his? Then why should any power on earth keep him from it and dispute his right? As Bertram sat there in the cheap West End London lodgings, puffing bad cigars and fuming mentally, he did what many a man, many thousands of men, and many a disappointed and impoverished litigant has again and again been constrained to do before and since his time. He waxed senselessly, wrathful and malevolent against himself against his progenitors, against his forebears, against the whole practice and system of English jurisprudence, which he denounced as antiquated, fossil, corrupt, unbearable, and incomprehensible from beginning to end, utterly insufficient and inadequate to the conditions and requirements of an advancing age and needing reformation to the very core. Yet for all that, Bertram found that English laws did exist. Every visit to Mr. Lumley's office taught and convinced him of that, taught it him more and more, and he learned more and more fully the truth, that what was called government existed on principles far more definite in their growth, and in their observance more honored than was the case in the great country whence he had flown where the rough and ready procedure of the lynch mob meted out summary castigation of none too lenient a kind to offenders against the moral sense of the crowd. Bertram Gnault found what others have found before, that a new training, a new beginning, as it were, was needful to fit him for the slower and surer ways of the old world, and that its legal procedure Anyway, was hedged in and defended by customs and bulwarks, as invulnerable of assault and requiring the machinery and sinews of battle, just as much as if he were 
marching against an enemy's material fort. It would be irksome to the reader, beyond what the perusal of these pages demands, were I to drag him through the apparently interminable succession of sloughs and sunshines, of hopefulness and despondency, which Bertram Gnault found it necessary to traverse, and to surmount foot by foot and yard by yard. Now elated at some fancy triumph as the rising sun of hope shone out more brightly in the heavens of his life, now cast down or in despair as the thunderclouds of legal uncertainty seemed likely to burst and engulf and forever to wreck his cause. We must not suppose that during all these weary months the claimant was not in correspondence with the United States. We must not suppose that he did not admit his boy body-servant into his confidences till one day an American steamer arrived with its freight of passengers in the Liverpool docks. The young jewels fell upon the neck of his own mother, and the two, the once slave mother and the long-parted son, the boy jewels, were locked in one long embrace of filial and maternal love, a love which grows not one whit more strongly within the breast of the free white mother than within the dark bosom of the negro or the slave. And when this meeting had taken place, when jewels had prevailed upon Bertram his master to allow his mother his own mother, Martha Massey, to appear in England as a witness. Jules at least knew that a great event of his life had come to pass, and that high master's cause was as good as one. For again and again had Jules heard his mother say she knows the young Massa Bertram right from the bare day he was born. On the arrival in England of Martha Massey, Bertram, judging that the society of the mother and son would be more congenial the one to the other, had quartered them together in a street at a convenient distance from his own lodgings. Not infrequently, too, did the three meet at Mr. Lumley's office in the quiet street near Lincoln's Inn Fields, and it was thus, link by link, that the able lawyer welded together his long chain of evidence, till he himself had no doubt left in his mind but Bertram Gnault was a Gnault indeed, and certainly not the fraudulent pretender to Vernwood, which he at one time half believed him to be. End of section four.